have your Bibles, I want to go ahead and pull those out and turn to Luke chapter 22. That's where we will be today. We're going to be starting in verse 7 of Luke 22. As I was uh, preparing and reading, um, studying this text, I was reminded of an incident that uh, happened, uh, kind of was brought to my my mind from this past year around Easter time, when on Facebook, I saw a post that was made by um, a relatively well-known Christian rapper, Christian hip-hop artist named Lecrae. And in this Facebook post, Lecrae posted a picture of himself in uh, like a, wa- a long white robe, and in the caption said that he was celebrating the Passover meal in Jerusalem for in, around Easter time. And to be honest, I was really just kind of struck by this for a few different reasons. Um, I thought it was weird because I'd never heard of any Christian ever celebrating the Passover. Certainly no well-known Christians I ever recall of uh, at least advertising that they were celebrating the Passover meal. Um, And it kind of struck also in my mind the question of whether or not Christians should celebrate the Passover. Um, I had never thought of that question before. I had never considered in, in all of my time as a Christian and all of my time in the church whether or not Christians should celebrate the Passover, whether or not it's okay for them to or not okay or, or whatever. And so it really kind of sparked in my mind uh, kind of this interest in uh, a little bit whether or not Christians should study the Passover. And, um, and I read a few articles and kind of came to, I think, some conclusions, and hopefully those will be helpful for you as we study today. Um, but a lot of that was kind of brought to my mind as I was looking at our text today and reading and studying, because in our text today, as you maybe can tell by my title, uh, we are looking at the most important meal in history, and that is the Last Supper uh, that Jesus ate with his disciples, the time when he celebrated the Passover meal the night before his death. And the Lord's Supper, I, I as I was kind of reading, and and as you even look at redemptive history, starting from Genesis, moving through all of Scripture, into the New Testament, and into today, really the way I think it is helpful to think of the Lord's Supper and its connection to Passover is something like that of a tree. We today, and we're going to do so later on in the service, celebrate the Lord's Supper as a church. We celebrate this meal that Jesus instituted, that he instituted in our text today, as we're going to see But the Lord's Supper is very much like the tree trunk of a tree, the bulk of the tree, the center of the tree where we find ourselves now today, but that tree finds its roots, the tree of the Lord's Supper finds its roots in the Passover. That is, as you look at redemptive history, the institution of the Passover really serves as the foundation or the first layer of of what then becomes the Lord's Supper, as we see today when Jesus eats and institutes the Lord's Supper at the time of the Passover. And so I'm going to go ahead and we're going to dive into our text, starting in verse 7 of chapter 22, and we're going to read through verse 23. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, 
When you enter a city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher, says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table with the apostles, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. suffer before, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another with which of them it could be who was going to do this. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask today that you would bless the reading of your word and the teaching of your word today. I pray that by this, we would come to a deeper understanding of your goodness, of your grace, of the way it is that you have accomplished, accomplished redemption on our behalf. And Lord, that we would leave here today encouraged, that we would leave here today uh, with a firm, and for some of us, maybe a fresh and a new understanding of the gospel. And that Lord, you would, uh, for anyone in this place today, open their eyes to the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, perhaps for the first time. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So our main idea for today, kind of a thesis statement as we under, seek to understand this text, is that the Old Testament shadows and types have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus, our Passover lamb. Old Testament shadows and types have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus, our Passover lamb. Now, this word type that I'm using here might be a word that's somewhat foreign to us, but to hopefully help you understand what I mean when I use the word type, I simply mean something that is a, a picture or a, a, a sign of something that finds its greater fulfillment later. So a picture of something that the substance of which comes later. We see then, we see types in the Old Testament. So that when we look at the story of David, for example, uh, David is a type of Christ. He is an example, a picture of one to come. When David conquers Goliath, it is a picture or an image that finds its true fulfillment, finds its substance in Christ Jesus and his victory over sin and death. That is what I mean when I use the word type here. So that the Old Testament shadows and pictures find their fulfillment or their substance in Christ Jesus, our Passover lamb. But before we get to the Passover meal itself, the writer Luke finds it necessary by the directing of the Holy Spirit to first tell his readers about the preparation of the Passover meal. And as we read this passage in, in verses 7 through 13, it kind of is one of those areas in Scripture, one of those sections that is easy to kind of move past, to skim over, to find to be 
unimportant to the point that we just glaze over it and find it to be maybe unexciting or unhelpful or serving very little purpose. But we know that nothing in God's word is unhelpful or is unimportant, and it all serves a valuable purpose. And that goes for this portion of text also. This portion of text, as point number one is on the screen, it lays out the important preparations that Jesus makes for the Passover. In verses 8 through 13, we see Jesus taking measures in order to prevent anything from keeping him from celebrating the Passover with his disciples. Jesus told them later in our text that he earnestly desired to eat the Passover with them before he suffered. He had intentions to celebrate the Passover once more with his disciples, but not only to celebrate it, but also to apply new significance to the Passover. This was something that was very important to Jesus, both for the sake of his disciples there with him, but also had broader and and significant ramifications for the church for all ages, even for us today. So Jesus gave Peter and John instructions. But in these instructions, there are really very little specifics added in, right? We notice in these instructions that Jesus leaves out any important specific details. He didn't tell them the location of the house where they would go and and eat the Passover meal. He didn't tell them the name of the man that they were to find. These important, helpful details were all left out. Instead, Jesus divinely worked out all the necessary details according to the plan of God. But they remained a secret to his disciples, especially to Judas. This was in order to ensure that nothing kept Jesus from celebrating this important moment in which he would institute the beautiful ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Because remember that Judas had already made his deal with the Jewish leaders, right? He had already come to an agreement with them that he would betray Jesus to them for 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus was fully aware of that, fully aware that Judas was now actively seeking an opportunity to turn Jesus over to the Jews at a time when when there would be nobody around, away from the crowds. So Jesus, in this leaving out of details and sending uh, Peter and John on this important mission without details, kind of in secrecy, is able to keep the Passover meal protected from anything that Judas might do. This was in order to prevent anything from from keeping the Passover meal to take place. And amazingly, the text tells us that everything went exactly according to plan, just as Jesus had laid it out. The preparation for the Passover meal was able to take place. And this preparation was no small task. Jesus gave them very little details, but they knew full well what all was involved in the preparation of the Passover. It involved not only finding a place to have the meal, but it involved uh, taking the lamb to the temple to be slain. By the way, Thousands and thousands of lambs were slain at the temple within just a few hour window. This would have been an extremely difficult task, extremely busy task. They had to do that. They not only had to do that, but they had to prepare all of the various side dishes. They had to make the unleavened bread. They had to buy the bitter herbs that were used in the meal also. They had to have wine to drink. And these two two disciples were tasked with seeing to all of this without even a name or a location given. But the details weren't necessary because the Lord 
in his providence, in his sovereignty, worked out all of this. He took care of it all so that the disciples went and found it exactly as Jesus has said. They happened in the right place at the right time to find this man carrying water. And so the clandestine mission that these disciples were sent on had been accomplished. And then we see that Jesus now was able to eat the Passover with the 12 disciples. Point number two for today is looking backward and looking forward. In verses 14 through 18, we see Jesus sitting down to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. Let us look at verse 15 for a moment where we see, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus, during his last evening on earth, desired above all else, not simply to eat food with his disciples. This was more than just dinner necessary for strength, but specifically to eat the Passover meal, to practice this Jewish celebration with his disciples. This uh, celebration specifically, that was a Jewish celebration. Mind you, Jesus has, as we know from our previous weeks, has had a lot of negative things to say about what the Jewish religion and what the Jewish system had become. And yet Jesus insists that in this time, He's going to eat this Passover meal, this Jewish tradition, with his disciples. And I think for, for the purposes of our sermon today, that it would be helpful for us to consider the origins and practice of celebrating the Passover as we consider how it applies to the context of our passage today. Because the Passover is one of the most important days in the Jewish calendar. We find the institution of this very important celebration in Exodus chapter 12, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, where we see the institution of this Passover celebration. But before we read in Exodus chapter 12, I want to remind us of the background in which the Israelites find themselves here in the book of Exodus when this event happens. The Israelites are at this time in captivity under the Pharaoh of Egypt, under this harsh and cruel, oppressive ruler, and in the midst of their suffering, God's people have cried out in despair and in anguish. Exodus chapter 2 verses 23 through 25 records this for us and also gives us one of the most encouraging and pictures, encouraging and helpful pictures of God's faithfulness to his people. We see in Exodus 2, 23 through 25, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And look at this. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. What a beautiful reminder of God's faithfulness to his people, of God's faithfulness to his promises, to his covenant. These people likely felt abandoned, felt forgotten by their God, but he had not forgotten them. In fact, he was in the process of raising up a leader, raising up Moses in order to take on the task of saving his people out of bondage. But as you may remember, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he refused to let the Israelites go. So God, having heard their cries 
and out of his care and compassion raised up Moses to lead them out of the land. And he also sent 10 plagues upon the nation of Egypt. And these were terrible, terrible plagues. We remember the, the swarms of locusts and flies and frogs. And not only that, the turning of the water into blood, the utter darkness, terrible, terrible things that were taking place in Egypt. And yet, of, after nine of these terrible plagues, the worst was still yet to come. God made plans to send the worst plague upon the people of Egypt, the worst plague that they had yet experienced. And this plague was more terrible than all the rest because this plague, this 10th and final plague, involved the taking of human lives on a massive scale. The 10th and final plague was the death of each and every firstborn male in the entire nation of Egypt. God's wrath was going to be displayed in a mighty and powerful and terrifying way in the land of Egypt. So much so that the Lord declared, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But the Lord gave specific instructions to his people, specific instructions on what the Israelites must do in order to escape this wrath in order to escape God's wrath that was going to be unleashed on Egypt. And this is what we now look at in Exodus chapter 12. We start in verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to his father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make for your count the lamb, your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verse seven. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let one of it, none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." And then we see finally in verse 14, the institution. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. We see here Jesus commanding the people to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, one without blemish, sacrifice the lamb and take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorposts. This was the means by which the people would escape the wrath of God. 
It's fascinating that God could have just identified them by their ethnicity, could he not? Identified this is an Israel home, and I will pass over them. But he didn't. On that night, there was no appealing to their genealogy. There was no appealing to their bloodline. There was no appealing to their good works. If there was no, no blood on the doorpost, then there was no forgiveness. There was no freedom from God's wrath. This Passover feast was a memorial for the nation of Egypt or Israel, one to be celebrated each year, to be reenacted, to be remembering that the way God saved his people from his wrath and brought them out of the land of Egypt. This feast was indeed an annual looking back to the day in which God rescued his people out of the bondage that they found themselves in in Egypt, saving them from his wrath and delivering them from slavery. But it was also a foreshadowing of something to come. The full picture and meaning of the Passover was to be fulfilled in the Messiah and in his saving work. In this way, we see that the Passover was not merely pointing back to a previous event in history, but also was a pointing forward to the day when a better and more ultimate rescue would come. This was the meal that Jesus desired to celebrate with his disciples, but this Passover meal would be unlike any that had come before. For Jesus, being that very Messiah that was to come, had plans to change the understanding of the Passover forever. Because the thing that the Passover pointed forward to was about to be fulfilled. Which brings us to point number three. New meaning applied and the new covenant inaugurated. The Passover reminded the Israelites of how the Lord spared them from his wrath by the blood of the lamb being put on the doorposts, on the sides and on the top. But for us today on this side of the cross, we see the Passover as much more than that. We recognize that the Passover in Exodus and the subsequent annual celebration was a type. It was a shadow. It was a sign of a coming salvation from the wrath of God. One that has been accomplished through the Lamb of God. The lamb that, like the Passover lamb in Exodus, is pure and spotless and without blemish. But for us, it is one that is provided by God, not one that we could ever get ourselves. Just like the story in Abraham when he is about to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar, what does the Lord do? He intervenes and he provides a lamb, a substitution, so that Isaac did not have to die. In the same way, God has provided a substitutionary lamb for us that we do not have to face his wrath. The Passover in Exodus is oozing with aspects and details that point us to Christ as the true and better substance of what was, of what was typified in the Jewish Passover. Just considering some of them, just like the lamb that was to be sacrificed in the Passover meal, the coming Lamb of God, whose blood would save us from the wrath of God, had to be perfect. He had to be spotless. He had to be without blemish. But his perfection, unlike that of the Lamb, could not merely be a perfection outwardly, could not merely be a surface-level perfection, like those sacrificed at the temple, 
But because of the nature of our wickedness and the wrath of God, the true and better lamb had to be perfect inwardly in his very nature and being. And Jesus is that perfect and spotless lamb. He is the only acceptable sacrifice that could ever appease the wrath of a holy God. So he, therefore, is the true and better lamb. This lamb that was to be our Passover lamb is identified by John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 29. When upon seeing Jesus, he proclaims, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For the Israelites in Egypt, they were spared from God's wrath by the spreading of the lamb's blood on their doorposts, not by their ethnicity, not by their good works, but simply by the blood of the lamb. So now the wrath of God rightly do a sinful people, and by the way, we are all sinful people. The wrath of God rightly do a sinful people is no longer counted against those whose sins are forgiven, those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb. We have no appeal to our good works. The song we sang this morning, Not in Me, reminds us of that. There is nothing that we can do, no gift that we can bring, no recitation of the truth. Nothing can justify a single wrong, but only the blood of the Lamb can cleanse us and save us from God's wrath. Again, the full meaning of the Passover Lamb is realized in Christ Jesus. The Passover meal was a meal of remembrance when the Jews would recall the salvation of God from their bondage in Egypt. So then, as we come back now to the upper room where we find Jesus and his disciples celebrating the Passover, we see that he is now shifting the focus of remembrance from that of Exodus and onto himself and the work that he would accomplish. In this event, he is transforming the celebration of the Passover into a whole new ceremony altogether, which for us, the saints today, looking back, not to Exodus from Egypt, but to Christ's atoning work on the cross means so much more. Jesus does this by taking the bread, the unleavened bread and the wine, and instead of performing the normal Passover liturgy, what does Jesus do? He leaves the script. He applies new meaning to the elements of the feast. Of the bread, he says, this is my body. And of the wine, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. This completely changes the Passover by turning it from simply a remembrance of a temporal salvation of the Jewish people from a temporal destruction and turns it into a symbol and a sign of an eternal and spiritual salvation from an ultimate destruction that is due us. In essence, Jesus proclaims to his disciples and to us today, I am the true Passover lamb. This gave even more clear significance to the word that, words that Jesus spoke in John chapter 6 when he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. This is a beautiful statement of Christ with significant spiritual realities for us. This is not an endorsement of some sort of spiritual cannibalism where we feast on the physical body and blood of Christ. For what is being described here 
is the spiritual feasting on Christ. Not the eating of his literal body and the drinking of his literal blood. Rather, what Jesus is demonstrating to his disciples is that he is the fulfillment of the Passover. He is our salvation. All those who are covered by his blood will be saved from the wrath of God, for he is the perfect and spotless and righteous lamb of God. The true Passover fulfilled. God's plan of redemption, this covenant of redemption made before the world began, we see demonstrated and, and exposed throughout all the pages of scripture, scripture, through signs, through shadows, and through types, but now we see it fulfilled in Christ Jesus. The perfect picture of God's redemptive plan, his salvation, the substance of those things pictured in the Old Testament is found in Christ Jesus. The plan of God was going to be accomplished. The plan of God to crush his son and for him to be slain at the hands of wicked men, it was going to happen because it was God's sovereign plan. Yet it did involve wicked and guilty men, as we see in the end of our passage. Point number four is the sovereign plan of God and the guilty traitor. We see in verse 21 through 23, Jesus then turns and again, one last time, addresses his betrayer. He addresses Judas. These last few verses demonstrate the fact well, particularly that when Jesus says, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. He demonstrates the fact that this is the sovereign plan of God that cannot and will be thwarted. God will bring about his plan of redemption through his Son. But these verses also clear up for us any misconception that would arise that, G that Judas is somehow freed from guilt because this is a part of God's sovereign plan. That Judas is somehow not responsible for the part that he played in the murder of Jesus. For Jesus says, woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. Because Christ knows the accusations that are going to come later. Accusations that still find their way in today where people will want to say, well, if God sovereignly worked this out, or if God sovereignly works all things out, then how can man be responsible for his sin? And yet we see here in this text the important fact that we have to be careful as a people, as a church, as uh, those who understand that God is sovereign, that we also understand that a twin truth also remains that man is responsible for our sin. Judas did what he did, yes, as a part of the sovereign plan of God, but also because it was his nature. It was his wickedness. It was his greedy heart that drove him to do that. He is by no means freed from responsibility because God is a sovereign God. But rather, Jesus gives one last woe to him by whom he is betrayed. If you remember from last week's sermon, I, I talked in rather great detail about how the murder of Jesus was a part of the sovereign plan of God. It was God's will, his hand and his plan brought it to pass that evil and wicked men would do evil and wicked acts and kill his son. It was all a part of God's sovereign plan. But each and every one of those wicked men, Judas especially, is going to be held accountable for their wickedness and is going to suffer for their wickedness and their evil and their sin. But we see here this beautiful celebration of 
the Passover, where Jesus then takes it and turns it into something dramatically different, the Passover now becomes the Lord's Supper. So back to my question that I started with uh, that was raised in me when I um, saw this picture of Lecrae and, and him celebrating the Passover and the question of whether or not Christians should celebrate the Passover. And frankly, I can't answer that for you. I don't think that there's any sort of law or saying that it's wrong for Christians to celebrate the Passover. In fact, I think depending on how it's celebrated, it could potentially be beneficial. Certainly, the study of the Passover is very beneficial for understanding uh, redemption, right? And God's plan as it has been laid out. But I can't tell you whether or not you should or shouldn't celebrate the Passover. But I can answer the question of why I don't celebrate the Passover, and the answer as to why I don't celebrate the Passover is not simply because I'm not Jewish, but it's because the Passover, as it was laid out in the Old Testament, as it was celebrated by the Jews, is a shadow and is a type of something that has been accomplished in Christ Jesus. I don't celebrate the Passover for the same reason I don't admire the beauty of a tree's roots. It's not the whole tree. In fact, there's something bigger and something greater coming out of it. And just like that tree trunk, which I would say is kind of where we find ourselves today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there is something more even than that. For the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate it today, not only hearkens us back to what Christ did on the cross on our behalf, but it encourages us to look forward to a coming day when we will celebrate once more and we will eat and we will feast with Christ Jesus in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the fullness of the tree, its branches and its trees, its full beauty cannot be seen without all of these aspects. But I don't celebrate the Passover because it is a shadow that finds its full substance displayed in Christ. It is a partial image that finds its revelation and full completion in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. This is why we celebrate what Christ has instituted in this passage here today the institution of the Lord's Supper, in which we do look back at the sacrificial work of Christ at his saving work, but not one saving us from a temporal destruction in Egypt, but one saving us from an eternal damnation in hell, one saving us from the wrath of God due on all sin. This is the full and utter completion of the Passover. Christ now is our Passover lamb. So if we want to look at the Passover, if we want to understand the Passover correctly, we cannot do so apart from recognizing its completion and its fullness in Christ Jesus. Consider what Jesus says in verses 16 and 18, and be encouraged with what I've already said, that we look forward to a coming day when we will celebrate with Jesus once again. He looked forward to this day in Luke chapter 22, back in our text, Jesus says in verse 15, he said, or in verse 16, excuse me, he says, I tell you, I will not eat it, eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then in 18, he says, I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus is recognizing and pointing us to the reality that we look forward to a coming day when we will celebrate an even fuller and more dramatic completion of what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, we will celebrate with him in glory. And we look forward to that day. All of this 
Everything that I've said today, our understanding of the Passover, the institution of Christ's Lord's Supper, him pointing out that he is our Passover lamb, all of this has great significance on how we should be taking the Lord's Supper. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. And I want to encourage you as we take the Lord's Supper, we don't say this often enough, I don't think, but, but certainly when we take the Lord's Supper, we think about the body of Christ broken for us. We think about the blood of Christ shed for us and the work that it accomplished for us in redemption. And that is good and that is right and we should see that. We should see the, the reality of sin's grotesqueness. We should see the blood of Jesus Christ being shed because sin is that bad. But we should also take it with eager longing and expectation and excitement for the day when we will celebrate together with all the saints and Jesus Christ in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray.